New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The Wizard of Oz was named the most watched motion picture in history by the Library of Congress and is often ranked among the top 10 best movies of all time in various critics and popular polls. It's been enjoyed by four generations since its premiere in 1939 and is the source of many memorable quotes referenced in popular culture. It's an authentic modern American fable with all the mythic images that provide a map for our own hero's journey. And this journey is needed now more than ever for the very survival of our species to bring a possible Earth into reality. This will be our focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Dr. Jean Houston. Jean Houston is a visionary thinker, teacher, and philosopher who pioneered the human potential movement and established the social artistry leadership model that she used in her work with the United Nations Development Program. She's the author of nearly 30 books, including A Mythic Life, A Passion for the Possible, and The Wizard of Us, Transformational Lessons from Oz. Join us for the next hour as we explore the beloved story, The Wizard of Oz, and how it has the power to reveal the hero's journey that awaits each of us with our guest, Dr. Jean Houston. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jean, welcome. Thank you. It's so good to be back with you again. It's wonderful. You provide the best programs in the world. No question. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's well, you you help make that happen with your inspiration and wisdom. And this time, we're going to be talking about the Wizard of Oz, and you've done a, a whole book taking that whole myth apart, and even talking about it as a myth. Let's talk about that. What, what is why are myths important to us in our daily lives? Well, myths tell us the greater story of our lives. I sometimes say that uh, the myth is part of the coded DNA of the human psyche, of human intelligence. So it, it tells us that even when bad things happen or we really run into a place of utter stuckness, there is a story beyond that. And so it gives us the encouragement, the impetus, the passion for the possible to continue. The other thing is that often myths deal with characters who are ourselves writ large. 
as, for example, little Dorothy on her quest in a state of tremendous yearning, tremendous yearning. Where is it? Where? How can I get there? Somewhere over the rainbow, you know. And we all feel that. We all feel as if we are being called to by the lure of becoming into a larger life. But invariably, we run into all kinds of obstacles, difficulties, and uh, the unexpected situation. Myth tells us how to work with these difficulties, how to see these challenges as opportunities and work clothes, and above all, how to get on that yellow brick road, <laughs> the road of spiritual pollen that is always luring us into the deeper parts of ourselves. And then how to go home again, how to go home, you know, uh, expanded, uh, deepened, uh, made more intelligent, certainly more compassionate, loving, and in that, to bring this, the grace of the adventure, the grace of the discovery, back into your standard space and time. I was, I was shocked, and you point out in the book, uh, Elbaum, who wrote the story. Frank Elbaum. Oh, Frank, Frank Elbaum, who wrote the story, and he did this, what, in 1910, uh, I think was when 1899 was, is when he wrote it. Oh, he wrote came it. Came out in 1900 for the first time. All right, came out in 1900. And it, this was long before Joseph Cam Campbell sort of yes. put out, and your friend and mentor, Joseph Campbell, put out all the stages of the hero's journey. Yes. Yet he, he got that intuitively. It was amazing as you take that whole apart in your book. Can you say something about well, that? Well, yes, I think that Joe would have... I actually had a discussion a long time. I, I didn't remember it till this moment about The Wizard of Oz as being uh, something in which you had sort of collapsed fairy tales that together, woven together, was really a great story, a great myth. But I think that one thing that Joe talked about is he looked at, what, 240 separate versions of the different great journeys of the hero and heroine, though he focused on the hero, of course. And he found that they were so similar so in some sense, they are written in our own psyche. So it is very natural for a man like Frank Baum, who had a very adventurous and creative life, to have discovered the liniments of the great story, the great journey, within his own creative mind. He mm -hmm. picked a, a, a girl for his protagonist. Yes. Now, that, now, often, most of the myths are not... The, the woman, the feminine, mm -hmm. as the hero. So say something about how this is different from oh, many men. Well, among other things, his mother, uh, his rather, his, grand, his uh, wife was a suffragette, and his mother-in-law was a very powerful presence in the suffragette movement. He himself was a great supporter of women. He honored, he loved, he extolled, he celebrated the genius of women all his life. So it was very, very natural that he would have as his main protagonist this young girl. Now, in terms of, first of all, it begins with the call, the great hero-heroine's journey, though the heroine's journey is different, as I will show. So she is, she's living in an outmoded situation, Dust Bowl, Kansas. Her, her relatives, her uncle and auntie, you know, are just counting their chickens. Um, Eddie M, Eddie M, I've got to tell you something. Oh, go away, Dorothy. Can't you see we're counting our chickens? You know, American way of life. And was trying to, these little chickens holding them against the, the uh, tragedy and the poverty of Dust Bowl, Kansas. So she needs something else to happen. And then the great yearning. 
And the yearning is so intense. And this is something that I find in all the great stories. You feel the call. You feel the yearning. You have to get on with it. Or the hound of heaven is going at your feet. Come on, wake up. And so she starts on her journey. And she goes first to a new age fellow, Professor Marvel, who is still, he may, you know, he may be a bit of a, you know, a rascal, but the fact is, he's a very good man. And in many ways, as you will see when she gets to the dream sequence or to Oz, he's the same person. But he gives her, he recognizes her, he knows where she is, what she needs to do. He gives her the means and the vision to go back home. And that's the first going back home. And of course, when she arrives there, she has crossed, she has entered into another realm where her allies are present, but they're not present. They're upstairs. She has to go into the house. The tornado comes. It often takes something very stressful or creatively monstrous to get you moving. You've got to get going, but you still refuse the task. You say, oh, no, not now, no, later. Uh, when the kids are grown, maybe maybe when I have more money, when I'm skinnier, when I, when I feel better, and finally you can't stand yourself anymore. And it takes the tornado to get you to the next part. And remember in the movie, she's in a, it's all black and white to that point. And when she then arrives after, you know, going through the spiral, you know, where she <laughs> and sees the cow these, and the cow passes. And a woman knitting in knitting, the rocking chair. And people rowing happily on the boat. Right, and, of course, Miss Gulch, her enemy in, you know, Kansas, turning into the Wicked Witch, you know. And when the, the, so the house lands, she opens the door into blazing technicolor. And this is where she has got to acquire certain attributes that she didn't have back in Kansas. Acute sensitivity, color, taste, sound, seeing an optimal society, a little high medieval or early Renaissance society, you know, with guilds. We represent the lollipop girl, right. you know, munchkins. And right. the munchkins in the book. Yes. In the book, she is, they are the same size as she is, and so they recognize her and her fullness. Um, and of course, what she has done is the house has landed on one of the wicked witches, and she's filled with compassion. She doesn't say, ha ha, as the hero, when I did it, I killed him. No, compassion. And it's, then who? It's, it's the first time that she says, oh, I, it was an accident. I, was an, I didn't mean to I do that. I didn't mean to do that. Yeah. And then she's going to need something else. And so the great beloved of the soul, the great personal archetype, the higher guidance, shows up as Glinda, the good witch from the north. And Glinda recognizes her and gives her the gift of the red shoes, the ruby slippers, but tells her, and this is always true in all the great stories, often we have great gifts, but we don't know what they're for. And she's going to find out at the end that it was a way to go back to the home of the heart, the home of the creative collective unconscious. So, Jean, how would you suggest, if we're going to incorporate this in our own lives, yes. how would you suggest that we recognize those gifts that have been given to us for this journey? This, of Well, one of the things I try to do in the book, The Wizard of Us, is to name the gifts. The gifts that we have for great sensory acuity, and I give you exercises to expand these senses, not just the outer senses, but the inner senses as well. Because in my studies, of, which have been over many years, of, of, of people who sustain creativity 
almost invariably they have access to inner senses, inner seeing, inner touch, inner taste, inner hearing. And often the creative act is one in which you tap into these inner senses and you weave them into that which you intend your project or what you want to create. So she needs the acuity of the senses. That's why she's in this incredible lush world to, to carry on the task. She can't bring her, <laughs> her Kansas, you know, straight poles and dust back into the world, into the new world. So when she's, and then she's put on the road of spiritual pollen, the yellow, yellow brick road, right. which is, by the way, something you find in many, many myths. You find it in uh, Navajo myths, you find it in Pueblo myths, you find it in myths all over the world. The, wor the world, it's that yellow road, the great yellow road that carries you on to who and what you really are. And then, of course, you need allies, so they show up. Now, the allies in this case are the disenfranchised parts of herself, the disenfranchised mind, and immediately compassion. She gets the scarecrow, you know, down from where he's having a very unhappy and very inauspicious life as a scarecrow. She is able to say, let's go to the wizard. Let's go to the ultimate source and get you your mind. I you love know? what you do, especially with the scarecrow, because you really take him apart mm -hmm. in some ways, <laughs> saying that as, as a true teacher that he is, you, you talk about how he acknowledges his condition. Yes. Then he imagines that he can be helped, mm -hmm. and then he asks for assistance. And then... I I love the part where you talk about all right. She's taking him off the post and yeah. he's down, and he's trying out his newfound freedom. I yes. guess for the first time, and he just falls. He's dancing around, and then he falls all over the place. Yes, and I thought that that was very significant because as we start to use these capacities, use a talk, new kind of mind. Yes, I'm here with Jean Houston. Mm -hmm. She's the author of The Wizard of Us: Transformational Lessons. From Oz, my name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I could while away the hours, confirming with the flowers, consulting with the rain. In my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. Oh, I tell you why the ocean's near the shore. I could think of things I never thought before. And then I'd sit and think some more. I would not be just a nothing. My head all full of stuffing, my heart all full of pain. I would dance and be merry, life would be a ding a dairy if I only had a brain. I'm here with Jean Houston, and we're talking about The Wizard of Oz and how it, that particular fable uh, can apply to our everyday life. And I, we're, we're talking about the scarecrow at this point, and, and what he feels he lacks is a brain. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about the brain. You have really done quite a bit of research on brain and so tell us what what have you learned about our capacities our well brain? our brains our minds are incredibly malleable 
there, there's a whole new field called neuroplasticity when we really see just how we can really repattern, restructure our brain-mind systems. And I've done a lot of work to do that. And I then in, in this book, I suggest exercises in which we regain the enormous power of our own brain to think in different ways, to feel in different ways, to to tap into the ways that we can use memory and the way we can tap into the incredible creative processes that are going on beneath the surface crust of consciousness all the time. We are in the golden age of mind and brain research, and I, in a very small way, very small way, hopefully have contributed with my husband, Robert Masters, have contributed something to it. So, what we do is take this particular part of the story where this poor being does not think he has a brain, but as it shows up, he's actually the smartest of everybody because too many people have been disenfranchised from their own intelligence because there are so many different kinds of intelligence. I, for one, have never seen or met a stupid child. I've met incredibly stupid and brain-diminishing forms of education. I mean, no child left behind. There was also no child left alive in many, many ways and the stupidity of it. We know so much more about how to activate the mind. Now, in The Wizard of, of Oz, it happens through the adventures. He has to use his his, his thinking being, uh, even though his head is stuffed with straw. We sometimes feel our heads are stuffed with straw, but it isn't. Our heads are stuffed with the potential for brilliance at every moment. And so... What I do there is is we just we find ways of activating the brain and thinking in entirely new ways, you see. And then, of course, another aspect of it is, is the disempowered heart, the tin man, you know, who has been rusted, and that's sort of the rusted heart, the fact that we may have great longings, a tremendous emotional spectrum, but our society has not permitted the largesse of this emotional possibility. So therein also processes to really activate our heart-mind, our, our ability to, have, to cross the great divide of otherness and experience radical empathy and love for the other. Uh, and that brings up the whole idea of mirror neurons. Mirror neurons. So mm-hmm. say something about mirror neurons and what they are. Well, mirror neurons in their fullness were discovered some uh, years ago uh, in Italy. Uh, at a university when they watched a a monkey in the cage who was seeing uh, one of the experimenters do something, and he reached out and he mirrored what the fellow was doing. And then they discovered that we have parts of our brain because they were able to see what was happening in the brain at the same time. But they had them kind of hooked up. Hooked up, and they found out that these motor parts of, of uh, of, of the brain were mirroring what was going on on the outside. It's how we learn. It's how we learn. And so we find that with children, if we can mirror, I mean, all kinds of skills, behaviors, ways of being, the children pick it up very rapidly. But if we put them into school too quickly, trying to get them just to read and write and become conceptual before they've become perceptual, I once said concept louses a percept, then we, we, we hurt our children terribly. And the same thing, what kinds of behavior are we mirroring because everybody else around us is going to pick it up? We have leaky margins to each other through these mirror neurons. I'm just wondering, uh, when you talk about education, what's suffering so greatly right now in education is support for the arts. Art, doing art, being art is what makes us human. Music is part of the natural rhythm of our bodies as well as of the cosmos. Uh, 
I, I find part of my work has been to restore arts into curriculum all over the world. Because if a child is dancing and singing and emoting information, if they are drumming it, if they are, if they are incarnating it by telling the story, you know, or dramatizing it, they do not fail. And I've done enough of this work all over the world to discover they do not fail. I mean, I think, for example, in schools in Bangladesh, which was still suffering under very bad 19th century British missionary education, which the Brits themselves had abandoned a long time ago. You know, once we put great story, great drama, art, you know, as you learn mathematical processes through drumming, you learn how to weave and fractions through, through weaving. I mean, there's just so many things that we did. Put art back, children do not fail. Take it away, children become more and more abstract and dedicated to having their calloused fingers on reaching other people through their smartphones. And they lose weather, wind, and trees. They lose the passionate confrontation with the other. They lose their humanity. Let's go back a, a ways to the, the opening scenes in the movie uh, when she's shortly after she is rejected by Andy M and she's trying to get her attention and Andy M and, and her uncle are counting the chickens and she, Dorothy goes off and she sings that beautiful song somewhere over the rainbow. So let's talk about the rainbow, rainbow in myths. What, Mm -hmm. what does that stand for? Well, it has many, many uh, meanings. It is the, it first, if it's the the colors of, of our visible spectrum but it's also more than that. I mean, I think of the story of the peacemaker in uh, the Iroquois where he is standing on a tree that is ready to fall down and it has stopped raining and he is convincing the Mohawks to give up war and to take on a new kind of peace with the other uh, uh, Iroquois peoples. And he sees the rainbow and he says, each of those colors is one of our tribes. And you see how we come together and we make new beauty. And then the rainbow, you see it as half, and that's what we see. But under it goes on under the earth so that we are of the great circle. We are of the nest of nests. We can create creative, dynamic, peaceful community. So that's one of the things. We have the rainbow people to know that we are now the people of so many, 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 many different colors. Now, you come from an old American family too, don't you? I do. It's yeah. true. Yes. And I'm half Sicilian. My mother was, you know, came from Sicily. But the other half is the Houstons of Texas, a very old family. I have the Crockett's in my family. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> hey, our relatives knew each other. There we go. But anyway, um, these, if we come from, and I can assure you, if we've been in this country more than 250 years, as your family and mine have been, we are part black. We are part Native American, plus all the different kinds of mixtures that came in from Europe and Asia and wherever. We are rainbow people, and we're living in a time where the world mind is taking a walk with itself, and we can no longer live as encapsulated bags of skin dragging around a dreary little ego or encapsulated nations thinking that we're it. If we're going to survive, it's going to take the rainbow, that rainbow that has become the image of a planetary civilization with high individuation of culture and colors, you see. 
So that's where I think we are. And, of course, you also have the rainbow myths literally all over the world. Among the Australian Aborigines, the, the rainbow serpent is one of the great creative forces of creation. It is everywhere. So we better pay attention. It's not simply the pot of gold And then, the of course, of the, the rainbow and the a whole Noah myth. Yes, I that's mean, when the, they knew that they were going to it, land somewhere. Right, yeah. right. So mm-hmm. it goes back to the... Hebrew and, and Christian myths mm-hmm. as well. Yes. And then there's the pot of gold, that the, the myth <laughs> of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Sure, but here's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's actually the chasing of the rainbow puts you on the road of adventures, where you really begin to discover the gold of the heart as you... Yes, yes. Traverse. So let's see, mm. we've talked about the brain, a little bit about the heart. And in the, in the heart... You point out that the heart also has neurons. It's actually a thinking heart. It is a thinking heart. It has immense amounts of neurons. And so when we say, when we feel emotion, uh, and we often do feel it in the heart, you know, but we're also, it it gives us wisdom. It gives us intelligence. I mean, uh, the heart has its reasons, which reason in the brain, upper brain, does not know, you know. So... And it has memory. And it has memory. You you talk and about and it has some, creativity. You talk about some people who have had heart transplants. Oh have, yes, have had <laughs> some interesting experiences. Very interesting experiences of of the same kind of feelings or moods or tendencies that the heart donor had had given them. They're you know? eating in a different way than yes. They ever I mean, a vegetarian or... starts eating. Chicken McNuggets, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a yeah. very famous story, yeah. you know, about yeah. this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So the the heart in the Tin Man that he felt like he lacked, and then the um, Cowardly Lion, mm. played so well by Bert Lauer. Uh, that's, he was so wonderful. Just he was perfection, wasn't he? Oh, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. And, of course, that's the fear that, you know, abides with us all. That especially in our time when we are facing the unexpected all the time, today looks nothing like tomorrow. Tomorrow doesn't look like yesterday. Most of us have not been trained uh, or prepared for a time of so much complexity. I mean, I realize other times in history thought they were it. They're wrong. This is it. This is it. And so, you. So he is who has been sort of fearful and living in the corner in the forest. Suddenly is put on the great road of adventures and it find, discovered that in point of fact, he has immense courage in all the, in the three. The, the tin man discovers that his incredible intelligence, uh, his incredible heartful intelligence, the, the, the scarecrow, his extraordinary mind, and who does all the heroic actions, even though he may be scared at the time, but... The Cowardly Lion. I actually went out and rented the film again. Did so you? that I just saw it yes. so very fresh in my mind. But uh, I, And I remembered it quite well. I was surprised at how well I remembered it. But, uh, I mean, it's so impressive. It really impresses. It is. It's a very impressive film. And he, um, there's a scene where he's having to, they're pushing him to approach the wizard. And I was impressed that, it's like he didn't have to do it alone either. We we have these allies. We have these teams of people. And what can you say about that? Well, we have teams of people. I mean, 
Uh, What was about 15 years ago or so, or 14 years ago, I helped Hillary Clinton write a book called It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. Well, it takes a village and a team and and a congenial group to help us create almost everything. This whole notion of you're just the two of you, the male and the female, alone with maybe a kid, I mean, that is, that's, that is deeply wrong. It's not how we go. We need extended families. We need extended co-creative community if we're going to do anything. And that's why this incredible story is so important. I mean, look at it. it it's, it's, it's intercultural, interspecies. You've got a little white girl. You've got a little black dog. You have the, the, you have the vegetable com- kingdom in, in the scarecrow. You've got the mineral kingdom, the tin man. You've got the animal kingdom in the uh, cowardly lion. We have all of these together, and we have them within ourselves as well because we have, we have many of these persona. Great heart, great mind, great spirit, <sighs> great intelligence, and that's something I try to do in this book is have people tap into the incredible teamwork of, of different pers- personalities we have within us. I'm here with Dr. Jean Houston. She's the author of The Wizard of Us, Transformational Lessons from Oz. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. If I only had the nerve I'm afraid there's no denying I'm just a dandelion A fate I don't deserve I'd be brave as a blizzard I'd be gentle as a lizard I'd be clever as a gizzard If the wizard is a wizard who will serve Then I'm sure to get a brain, a heart, a home, the knife. I'm here with Jean Houston, and she's the author of The Wizard of Us, Transformational Lessons from Us. And if you'd like to check out her her blogs and her work, you can go to her website, jeanhouston.com. And Houston is H-O-U-S-T-O-N, jeanhouston.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Jean, uh, there are several times in the book that you mention something called social artist and social yes. artistry. And it's, uh, tell us, what do you mean by that? Well, it's a form of artistry, except instead of having a painting or a canvas or a music paper or whatever, clay, the canvas is society as at large. Part of my work, which has taken me to 108 countries in the course of my life and working intensively in 40 cultures, is I find that too often leadership is bound into an earlier era and an an earlier set of capacities. Part of my job, because I do work as a consultant to the United Nations in human development as well as other international agencies, is to help leadership at every level, from the head of a country to the man in uh, in Mumbai and Bombay, who is pushing the broom in his leper colony? I mean, leadership. We need and by leadership. I mean having the skills, having the inner resources that allows you to bring new mind, deep mind to bear upon the great social issues. So, social artistry is human development in the light of social change, not bringing old mind to the enormous complexity and challenge of our time. As I said, it has involved entering into societies, really getting inside their jokes, their stories, their, uh, their food, so that you, 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 you have deep, deep appreciation of the society. And then 
making the suggestions preferably within the traditions of the culture so that you can actually begin to uh, experience real changes. Both I, I do the things in, in social artistry, which I do in the book. We expand the senses. We expand the inner sense of personalities. We expand the story. We find the great adventures of the society that are carrying us, the great myths carrying us forward. And above all, we source ourselves in the spirit that is there all the time, that is ready to rise and to give us higher orders of, of intelligence, of love, and of being. Well, Jean, to help us understand that better, can you give us an example of how we train leadership now in the old paradigm, how, how, it's, how it's done, what it looks like, so I understand better the difference? Well, man, many leaders are trained. They're not trained inside out. They're trained outside in. They learn the problems of a society. They learn different ways of approaching and becoming diplomatic. That's very good. They learn... Uh, about the resources of a society. They learn what is wrong. They rarely learn what is right. They rarely are taught to have this radical empathy within which they can really understand from inside and to really make friendships, as Dorothy made friendships with mind, body, and spirit. You, I teach them how to make these friendships, how to expand their senses, expand their hearts, expand their different kinds of intelligence, and to really deeply appreciate others in such a way that they will really learn much more about them and be much more, they will be helped in the helping, do you see? And in doing this, we've been of some usefulness in many societies. One of the things you point out in the book <clears throat> was um, in back in the 30s, 40s, when we were doing, first really doing factories, and you yes. mentioned specifically the Ford Motor Company mm -hmm. and how people would get admonished for even smiling or telling a joke or, or doing singing. Or, or singing yes. or humming, mm -hmm. and some even <clears throat> fired for that, that, that everything was compartmentalized and you are not, work is not play. That's what Mr. Ford said. We are by nature playful beings. We are. Homo ludens, play. When we are playful, we are often at our best. So that work and play really have to be together in a whole new way. One of the things I've done, you know, again, all over the world, is to create a creative, playful atmosphere where people are free to become who and what they really are. And then we discover that not only their creativity, but their mood changes and the whole texture of the company changes as well. You also mentioned something about the Bhutan and how they look and, and they do an index that is very different from what we call our gross national product. Yes, it's a gross uh, happiness index. Uh, so tell us about that. Well, what they do is they really look at uh, how people are, how they're happy, how they, how they are playful in their society, how they, how they, what they enjoy. How large is their enjoyment during the course of a day? I mean, there's many, many indexes, but most of them, frankly, are more narrative than not. But they, it is the happy society, even though it may not be a rich society, as Bhutan certainly is not, that makes people want to live, want to be, want to explore, want to adventure, want to have deep and lasting relationships, wanting to grow together, and above all, really being very playful together. That's what happiness is. 
Can you imagine having that for the U.S.? Oh, Lord have mercy. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it be uh, fantastic? Instead of going for the product. The emphasis in these happy societies is on process and not on product. And this is where the rise of women is so important, which I believe to be the single most important happening of the last 5,000 years, the rise of women, slowly but surely and with terrible backlash, but to full partnership with men in the whole domain of human affairs. Because with women, the emphasis is on process rather than product, on making things cohere, develop, grow, relate, get along, inner life being as important as outer life. And so I really feel that, and of course, Dorothy being the heroine of this extraordinary fable is so important because she brings her understanding of process, of caring, of compassion, of relationship. And that is what is underlying the entire heroine's journey as compared with the more classical heroes. So points. often her going forward is a reaction in helping someone else, like a um, there at the end of the story, she uses uh, a bucket of water to put out the flames on the scarecrow yes. and inadvertently kills the wicked witch of the West. Oh, yes. How could such a little girl hurt my beauty, <laughs> kill my beautiful wickedness? wickedness. You know? <laughs> oh, my. Uh, or, you know, uh, the house falling on the first witch. <clears throat> and, and so she apologized. She said, oh, I didn't mean to do that. But it's like... She, she does things to help others, and that's like her big strength, I think. Her big strength and an incipient goodness, a random goodness follows her around, which I frankly believe is part of the nature of the universe. Uh, let's talk about another part of the story. Just as they, they start to see the Emerald City, mm-hmm. the big, green, beautiful city before them, there's a field of poppies. Mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> Brought on by the Wicked Witch. Yes. yes. So tell, tell us about the field of poppies that crop up in our lives. Well, the field of poppies is what puts us to sleep often before we are at the place of our accomplishing anything. I mean, it's there in many myths, in the Odyssey. Here is Odysseus. He's been away for 10 years. He's finally getting back after months of struggle to see his wife you know, now it's, you know, for very left, it's been gone a long, long time, and he's holding the sail that is filled with the contrary winds, so the winds don't blow him around. And he says the equivalent, hey, boys, you hold the sail, hold your windbag, watch out with your windbag, because I want to go down and get some sleep and look pretty for Penelope, you know. Wrong. He has not attended to the crew of himself. And the crew says, hey, you know, what do you suppose is in the bag? You know, he always shared everything with us. Let's open the bag. He's asleep. He won't know. (laughs) And here come the winds that then blow him for another 10 years around before he can come back to her. How often we fall asleep or we get distracted at the time of near accomplishment why does this happen? I think this is part of entropy. Entropy, the running, building up of a running down of energy, that which tries to contain us, constrain us. It really uh, calls forth uh, our, our pluck and our cunning and our keeping on it and our sustainability when we are nearly at the goal. Do not fall asleep. Do not fall asleep as so many of us do because then, whoop, we're blown out to sea or we really have the end of our adventure before we have had the accomplishment of it. 
Now, in the Dorothy myth, um, that's where the great friend comes in. Glenda, yes, your archetype shows up. So tell us about that great friend archetype. Well, I think of her as what I call the entelechy. The entelechy means the divine purposefulness that's within each one of us, the higher guidance, the essence. It's the entelechy of an acorn to be an oak tree. It's the entelechy of a popcorn kernel to be a fully popped entity. It's the entelechy of a baby to grow up and be a human being, a full adult human being. But I find in my work for over many years, it is the entelechy of each one of us to activate something extraordinary, what I have come to call second genesis evolution within us. We've, many of us have finished with or have a compromising time with our first genesis, our first development, but there's another level and layer of development And it is the glindas within us. It is the archetypes of possibility. It's the inner beloved. It is the high essence that keeps us on track, on the path, and helps evoke and sustain our higher becoming. And also helps, it gives us good warning when we are way out of there and way off it, you see. And that's what glinda, it is the archetype. Archetypes are great primal principles. And there are many kinds, but in this case, it is the benign principle of higher guidance who allows, uh, who comes in just at very specific times to uh, change the story. We need that accompanying one who has the higher sense and vision of the whole story that then enters in and helps push us on the road to discovery and accomplishment. So, Jean, how do we open to that when we most need it, when we're going to sleep, when we're when we're feeling like, oh, we'll never make it, let's take a break from all of this and and not pushing ahead. How do we come I think I'll do touch? my Facebook now. I think I'll get on Twitter. Jean, how is it when we are going to sleep that we invoke well, you know, just before we're getting the prize, when we go to sleep, we invoke this archetype, this great friend. How, how do we get in touch with that great friend? Well, we believe in it. We have a sense that it is, she is, he is, it is there for us all the time. It is a suspension of disbelief. It is a realization that we live in a universe that is enormously populated, and part of it is populated in our favor. We have divine guidance, and if we can think of it in a personal way, then we find that that guidance is much more available to us. So with Dorothy, it was Glinda. You know, with uh, with somebody like Jung, he called it Philemon. With uh, Dante, it was Beatrice. With me, it's an Athena archetype. But it is a pattern of tremendous energy, love, creativity that is very special to us and is part of our higher guidance. I'm here with Dr. Jean Houston. She's the author of The Wizard of Us, Transformational Lessons from Oz. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow. Why, oh, why can't I? I'm here with Dr. Jean Houston, and we're talking about the Wizard of Us. And Jean, we're talking about, you were talking about IntelliKey and, and that which is that, that seed of who we truly are and who we want to grow into. And uh, can, can you help us further with that? Sure, I'll give you a little exercise. Excellent. Um, a very abbreviated one, but imagine that, or actually put your hands up in front of you as if you're play, paying, playing patty cake. And I want you to imagine, and for the next couple of minutes, accept that it is true or is a healing fiction, that standing opposite you is this higher self, this great, great guidance that loves you so much, who we're calling IntelliKey. And you can may even begin to feel your fingers tingle as you are being touched by this being who is looking upon you with so much love, with so much affection, who knows who and what you are and what your tremendous possibilities are. And you feel yourself loved, affirmed, deeply nurtured, cherished even, by this great being we are calling IntelliKey. Think of it as the higher friend, the great friend. And this great friend is igniting all kinds of latent potentials in you, is giving you such unconditional acceptance and love you know yourself affirmed, empowered, deepened, called forth to the fullness of who and what you are. And as you are there with the IntelliKey, with this higher guidance, this great friend, you know that you are being activated, ignited to your higher potential, to the deeper dream, to the higher path, if you will, the yellow brick road of an extraordinary adventure and life in which you say yes. And you know that from this moment forth, if you choose, you will be accompanied by this great friend who will guide, who will inform, who will protect, who will love you and call you into the life of who and what you really are, the IntelliKey. Thank you, Jean. In, in this time, that calling is, is more important than ever, that we respond positively to that calling. You talk about this. You, you talk about another time in history as we were coming out of the Dark Ages, and then now it's the 1400s. And you go through an enormous list of people that showed up in that fullness that, you're, that you just shared with us uh, to change the course of the world. And, and so here we are again in that kind of needing that kind yes. of shape. Can you talk about what happened then and the possibility of now? What happened then is people were digging in the soil of Italy and coming up with magnificent statues and the glorious, the glorious art of the uh, Renaissance world. Um, the Byzantine scholars were leaving Turkey, leaving uh, Byzantium, Constantinople, fly, fleeing from the Turks. They were bringing the greatest knowledge and wisdom and writings of the ancient world. Uh, and at the same time, people like Leonardo da Vinci were demonstrating how to use perspective. And that, that changed painting. Painting was no longer flat. It had depth and perspective. Music was changing. Music 
music was getting polyphony, many, many harmonies together. Uh, Galileo, a little bit later on, was making all kinds of new attunements with the telescope and seeing and finding the cosmos, as was Copernicus and Kepler. And then we had people like Van, uh, Lewin, Van Leeuwenhoek, who with the microscope was seeing the infinities in the very small. Uh, Michelangelo was creating the Duomo. Vesalius was looking at the structures of the body. Harvey was defining the flowing of blood. We were suddenly in a world in which the world had expanded and our inner space, we were becoming fascinated by what we held within the images, the continents of spirit, and we joined great inner life to great outer life, and that was Renaissance, or in Italian, Renascita, deep and radical renewal. And I believe the same time this thing is happening today, because now we have access to the cosmos in ways we never had before, both the cosmos without and within. We are harvesting the genius of so many different cultures around the world. We are coming to an understanding, since we have been out to the moon and looked back, that this little planet, because you see out there, you don't see tribes, you don't see nations, you don't see wars, you see our great extraordinary mother, Gaia, the Earth, who requires of us this expansion of our inner and outer knowing so that we become the deep and good servants and stewards of her life at this incredible time in history. So it's really, you, you also talk about how it takes courage that each one of us has made a courageous act by even choosing to be born on this planet at this time. Can you say something about that? Well, we are, as I say, in the most critical time of history, the time in which we decide whether we grow or die, whether we evolve or perish. So each of us comes in with a kind of added responsibility, and we have to prepare ourselves and deepen ourselves and constantly educate ourselves to be the stewards of this time. So I think a lot of people may feel initially frustrated and lost because they you 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 are after all earth spawned and the earth is speaking for you and saying it's time to grow up it's time to awaken and that's why so many people and particularly those who are listening to your programs in the new dimension series you know get so much inspiration to wake up to grow to become what we can be so that we are worthy of the immense responsibility and challenge that has been placed upon us by being born in this time. Jean, in your book, you talk about a good friend of both of ours, uh, Lynn Twist, yes. who has yes. done so much wonderful work with yes. her Pachamama Alliance. And uh, she, had, with along with her husband, Bill, have gone down to South America and Ecuador, a Ecuador and worked with the Ashua people and they, she asked them, what should we be doing? And they gave her the commission, we need to change the dream that's being dreamed in the North. Yes. Too much of the dream is about material accomplishments, about getting more and more stuff, and that is killing the earth. And so the dream has to be changed into the dream of an ecologically sound world, a world in, of deep sharing, a deep, a world in which we have great appreciation of each other, a dream of the earth as she is meant to be in this, the most critical time of human history, and above all, a dream that works, 
a dream that works for all of us. What does a world that works for all of us really, really look like? And so when you look at something like the Emerald Castle or the, or the world around that part of Oz, where people are happy, healthy, they're all involved in wonderful things to do and be, and they discover ultimately that the wizard is us. And that beautiful city, the wizard, it, it turns out to be us. But in, the, and in that beautiful city, as they walk around, everybody has a job to do. Everybody has a job. They, they, so there's no, and there's seemingly no poverty. There's uh, the horse of a different color. Yes. <laughs> you know, these marvelous things. And they go in and they, they go to a spa. That's one of the first, first things thing, they do. The, the wash up and, you know, the, they, the, actually, they get freshened up. They get freshened up. They get the to go society. to the spa and, and be be clipped and trimmed and bathed and, <laughs> and uh, With refreshed. a lot of happy music. Ha, 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 ha. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you're saying that, that we can dream a new dream where the world works for all livingness. We have to dream it. It can't just be what should we do about education here or health there. We have to dream the whole dream so we can see all the parts as they have, for example, in the Emerald City in Oz. It's a green world. I mean, that's why, you know, it's a green world. How do we activate the wasteland without by first activating the green world within us? Because when we are thinking in many ways, when we are taking the great adventures of the soul, when above all, we are traveling together, you know, co-creating with very different, not only parts of ourselves, but very different kinds of, of co-creative team workers, then, my friends, then we can create the possible society. There is a phrase, um, I think it's uh, Kevin Danaher always signs off with it, or maybe it's Rick and Grassi. It's like, if you want to change the story, throw a better party. <laughs> and I, I like that because it's really about that. That's what you're saying is, is dreaming a whole dream of a better party, not, not just fixing the Titanic and rearranging the, the deck the chairs, chairs as it's going down, but to really leave that ship behind and, and get, get a new ship that is full of joy and laughter. And that's, a, that's really important, too, is laughter. Well, laughter is essential. I mean, it's a very funny story. Comedy, paradox, laughter. We find that, uh, you know, I grew up in the comedy business. My father was a, uh, was a uh, comedy writer for Bob Hope and everybody. And my whole childhood was just filled with laughter and funniness. And regardless of all the absurd situations that we got in on the road, laughter permeated it all. And laughter gave me some of the greatest lessons of my life. And so when we look at this great story and we see how funny it is, how comical, how filled with the unusual and the unexpected, which is really the nature of a great joke, then we know that laughter may be the key to our human becoming. Gina, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Justine. It's always such a great, great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I've been speaking mm -hmm. with Dr. Jean Houston. She's the author of The Wizard of Us, Transformational Lessons from Oz. And if you'd like to be in touch with her work and, and all that she's doing, her blogs and her articles and her other books and, and also CDs, 
programs. Uh, you're just filled with a lot of seminars. Teleseminars, the whole thing. Go yeah. to genehouston.com. Gene Houston, H O U S T O N, genehouston.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3459. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis Toms. Our post production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.